Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day with the Al Jazeera News Updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. The CBC is funny. One show, anyhow, Baroness Von Sketch. You've probably seen some of it on your Facebook feed, and it's funny. It's smart and confident and well-observed. And I know that that is not the kind of criticism that you look to me for, thumbs up, thumbs down, that kind of thing. But I bring up the funniness of this one particular show because I actually consider it newsworthy. Something has obviously changed at the CBC in order for a show like this to be made, a show that will offend some people, a show that doesn't seem like it got squeezed through this kind of you know, patronizing filter that asks whether grandmas in Regina will get it or not. So I'm curious how it happened. And I'm also curious if the whole cultural and economic system of comedy in this country might be shifting in some positive ways. The reason why I think that it might be is the existence of funny people like Monica Heisey. Monica is the co-writer of some of the best Baroness von Sketch skits, the locker room one, uh, the pharmacy one among them. She also wrote a funny book called I Can't Believe It's Not Better. She's written for Canadian blogs and for The New Yorker. She has edited journalistic pieces for Vice's Broadly site. She kind of defies a lot of notions about what you should be doing at what point in your comedy career and where you should be doing it. And I've been looking for an excuse to talk with her. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Jody Berland, Stephen Javor, John Stockton, Aran Rasmussen, Mary Kay McIntyre, Mark Gamash, Britt Embry, and Megan Clausen. Megan, why did you decide to be awesome? Because over the last few years of being involved in the municipal sewage debate here in Victoria, I've learned just how frustrating it is when the media doesn't do its research. 
I think Canada Land is making the Canadian media up its game, and I'm really happy to support This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world. And BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help. And one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of, of organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in, in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Once again, it's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. This episode is also brought to you by ShipStation.ca. And ShipStation is another company that has solved big problems for those of you who ship things as part of your online business. If you are selling stuff on the internet, you probably use a lot of different sites to do that. Amazon, eBay, Shopify, Etsy. There are 65 other popular selling channels. And it's fun to get that ding every time you have an order, but it is annoying to go through all those sites, collect the orders, get the shipping information, print out the labels, figure out which shipping service to use. Well, in the time that it's taken me to tell you that, you could have set up an account with ShipStation that will automatically suck all of that information, all of those orders that you get from all of those different shipping channels into one place, figure out on its own what shipping solution is best, and spit out labels that are compatible with those shipping services. It puts everything in one place. It helps you do your job better and run your business much more efficiently. You will ship more things in less time, and you'll get the best rates available. It is the number one choice of online sellers in North America. Don't wait. Go to ShipStation.ca, and before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in Canada Land. This episode is also brought to you by FreshBooks. FreshBooks, of course, is the founding sponsor of Canada Land. They make my life easier. They get me paid quicker. They are the solution for online billing if you are a freelancer or if you are a small business. One thing that FreshBooks really makes very simple is reporting. You can know your financial numbers at a glance. You can very quickly and easily generate reports 
profit and loss reports, payments collected, tax summaries, expense reports, many more things like that. You've got a way to sort and filter reports very easily. You could see who pays you quickly and who pays you more slowly. You can order things that way. You can share journal entries with your accountant. So everything you do with your bookkeeper, if you have one, is expedited when it comes tax time. I don't have a accounting department, but I hire an accountant to help with the taxes. All of that stuff is very easy to deliver because I use FreshBooks. Go to freshbooks.com slash CanadaLand. Try it out for free for 30 days. When you do decide to become a customer, tell them who sent you. Baroness von Sketch Mm -hmm. is funny. (laughs) Was there an accident? (laughs) I also work for another funny show on the CBC. So I am happy to report that I think the CBC overall is getting funnier. I'm being a jerk, and and I ask that somewhat facetiously, but like I actually can't think of, and it's just a statement of my opinion, but I also believe it to be a fact, between the kids in the hall and Baroness Von Sketch, there has not been a funny sketch show on the CBC. Canadian comedy has a bit of a bad rap. In a lot of ways, I see how we got here, Um, but there's funny people all over the place. I think Canadians are pretty funny as a group. And then our comedic crop of like actual professional comedians is really, really like world-class. Yeah, but you just put your finger on the distinction. I don't think anybody's ever disputed that there are lots of funny people here and we've always been overrepresented in the comedy industry in the States, the number of Canadians who do well there. It's it's the distinction between like comedic talent and the comedic product. Um, mm-hmm. Like you just had this week, I think you wrote the Monistat sketch. I co-wrote it with um, Meredith McNeil, who's one of the Baronesses. Yeah. Um, she's the one trying to buy the Monistat in the bit, but yes. And it's a piece that's like all about vaginal health and how women are made to feel ashamed for their hygiene. And it's like hilarious and very explicit. (laughs) And it's just nothing that I have seen, you know, not that the kids in the hall went there, but they went there on some other stuff. But there's just something that seems to happen by the time it comes out as product, as a show that like somebody's thought like, well, let's actually like, you can't say that. And Let's let's cast this this way. I don't know how things go wrong so often, but it didn't go wrong in this case. I mean, that issue, I think, is something across making televised comedy. I don't know that it's specific to Canada. I'm super new to the industry. Realistically, my first job was on Baroness von Sketch Show last summer. Yeah. And I've been lucky. I've had work since then. So I have the the tiniest amount of insight. Um, I haven't come up against this. I've been really lucky. First of all, I'm a very junior writer, so I'm not the person who'd be having these conversations anyway. Um, But also it seems like, uh, certainly with Baroness, they're not having big fights with the network. They're really being given freedom to make the show that they want to make. And I think that's a fairly unique freedom in television production, especially in comedy, maybe especially in Canada, but I can't necessarily speak um, to how things work here versus the States because I don't have any U.S. experience. And it sounds like it's a problem all over the place where you say, I want to make this joke. And then someone who works in production is like, sure, but um, you can't have it be about a penguin. And also, could it not be about ice? And then you can't, you just can't do the thing that you were going to do at all. Jokes are very specific. Yeah. Like little tweaks to the language 
make it funny or not funny. Well, and having having the freedom to work with in the Baroness case, they're all friends. They've been working together for a long time. Yeah. You know, nobody knows their voice better than themselves. And so the freedom to make something in their own voice, at least then, even if the show is a spectacular failure, which I'm happy to say that it's not, at least then it would be their specific kind of failure. And you could have seen what the attempt was going to be. And uh, I think it makes sense to empower creators to make their specific product. And then if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And it's a bad experiment. But at least you tried to make what was being proposed in the first place. Does that make sense? It does. And and it actually, that's part of the fun too. I mean, I like that show quite a bit, but I think it's hit and miss. Like any first season of any sketch show, people are finding their voice and figuring out what works and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. It's a format that like you have to try things. I don't know. I'm an outsider and appreciator of it. I've never like done this kind of stuff, but I, I don't mind when I look at uh, kids in the hall and there's like some seasons that are so weird and experimental and like, there's no punchline even, but you're like, they're going for it. Yeah. You know, and when it connects, it does. And when it's not, it's, it's not even like a bad experiment, but it feels like you guys have room to try to fail to succeed. Well, that's the thing. I think having space to be hit and miss is really important. I don't think you can name a sketch show that's not. Mm-hmm. really hit and miss, at least for some seasons or some episodes. And uh, I think fear of failure is like a fairly Canadian trait. I feel like if something's not going well, the Canadian impulse is to just put your arms up and back away slowly. Yeah. So to give a show room to be itself for maybe more than one season is uh, is something that I think is a really valuable and maybe under under practiced idea. You said earlier that, you know, Canadian comedy gets a bad rap and you have some idea about how we got here. What is that idea? How did we get here? Oh, I I mean, like you said, you know, Kids in the Hall is sort of held up as this classic Canadian comedy show. And then there's... Do you agree? Is that like... uh... Do you know what? I haven't... uh, Don't tell on me. (laughs) I haven't watched a ton of Kids in the Hall. Some people are listening to this. I should have told you in the beginning. Oh, crud. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I... I saw a couple sketches and I don't love when men do really silly drag. Yeah. And I found it a little just like off putting. Not that it wasn't funny. It was funny, but I was like, do I want to do I want more of this necessarily right now? And then I never did again. Yeah. Um, But I I feel like I need to go back. It's like at this point, it's getting to one of those things where it's like, you haven't seen Star Wars. But Um, it's not a part of your like canon of inspiration. No. I mean, I watched Monty Python so I can handle dudes doing silly drag. Yeah. But I think maybe that's where I topped out. Okay. Back to how we got here. Well, yeah. So there's kids in the hall that everyone holds up as this big moment. And then there's not really in any kind of Canadian TV, like a real blockbuster I mean, not from um, Degrass, a comedy there's geek. Degrassi. Like Corner Gas was a blockbuster, I guess, of sorts. As yeah, a, as very a, successful show. But no comedy people think that that's like right. a wonderful piece of art. Right. Um, and not everything has to be a wonderful piece of art. You know, things can, it's it's nice to let things exist for, as what they are. Yeah. But I do think that there hasn't been a ton of, I mean, Picnic Face had a really exciting first season and then it didn't get space to grow into a second season and develop and mature, you know, to take a bunch of comedians who are all so young and let them make something, but only let them make it for a second and Mm -hmm. not see where it goes. That seems like a shame. And that's something actually, speaking of comedy nerds, that comedy nerds were quite up in arms about, you know, and and rightly so. Um, So a spirit of long-term experimentation, I think, is something that's really important for developing good TV. 
you're a comedian in a community of comedians. You're, I think you're, you're married to a comedian. I am. So I know that you talk about this extensively amongst each other, how a show got fucked up or what show got greenlit and what show didn't. And I'm sure that like down to the names, of the executives and all sorts of things that would be unwise for you to get into here. <laughs> so I, I don't mean to kind of uh, like put you in a pinch. So let's talk like, well, I do. I mean, that, that I'm, I'd be overjoyed if you did that, but great. like, like talking about CBC comedy specifically, it feels like there's like some ambivalence there. Um, but what's going right? I think it's really exciting. I think they're taking really exciting, uh, risks and I think they are, it feels like really dedicated to getting it right. Like punchline came out and it didn't go so great. And then they rebranded it and are trying a new tack. And those are all my feelings about punchline. Um, their website, their comedy portal, the website, it, it was not good. And there seems to be almost like a, um, official, um, recognition of that in the rebranding is just CBC comedy. That's exciting. I think it's cool to, to fail, uh, in public because it means that you tried something in public mm-hmm. and something that they, they've been doing the whole time and that they're still doing is paying Canada's comedy scene that I was just talking about that I think is so great. Uh, some money, you know, like, uh, writing, Humor articles is how I funded the first like few years of whatever the hell it is. that's my career now. And having an extra source of income that also lets you practice your comedy writing is really, really valuable. Right. But, but here the distinction that must be made is between something that is good for the community <laughs> and what's good for people who like to read about comedy. You know, when CBC Comedy rebranded as CBC Comedy, when Punchline rebranded as CBC Comedy, um, and they said, hey, we got a sweet new website. Come check it out. The immediate response from a, like a lot of people, then specifically a few people in the National Post was like, you forgot to make it funny. You changed the design and it's still not good. And a lot of joy was had at the thin skin of some of the people at CBC Comedy. And we we reported on that and I will t- we totally took part in making fun of CBC Comedy. And we did receive a lot of response from people in the comedy community saying like, like, like a layoff. We just started this. And they're paying a lot of comedy writers to do this like kind of onion style fake news stuff. But unlike Baroness von Sketch, that did come through this filter of what is safe. There was a filter that doesn't exist for Baroness von Sketch. And I'm just curious. I'm not asking you to, to be accountable yeah, I'm like for the most the junior person in the world that you're like, hey, what's happening at CBC at the highest level with people you've never met? Yeah. So <laughs> you don't know. You maybe picked the wrong guest for that. Well, I picked you because uh, I'm interested in your writing beyond that. And like, I want to talk about your book and the stuff that you put out in, into periodicals and the fact that you're a standup. And, but I, but yeah, like I, I am, I'm just sort of aware of these kind of contradictory like signals that we're getting out of CBC comedy. Like, well, like I, I'm hearing from people in the production community that they're taking chances they never took before and that they're like way more hands off. And then you see something like Baroness Fun Sketch come out, which from the quality of the show to just the way they're marketing it. And it seems like very socially media savvy. It's different and it's exciting, Yeah, you know, and, and then, you, and then there's the stuff with the website. So I know that you have thoughts about this, but you also get paid by these people. There's a comedy group in England called the Alternative Comedy Memorial Society. And it's, um, I think it's a monthly night and it's for very established comics come and try like their weirdest thing that they can't find a home for somewhere more mainstream. And at the end of every act, uh, the host of the night comes back up and yells to the audience, a failure. And the whole audience yells back, a noble failure. And I think that's very earnest. It's like a lot to handle. But it's also 
makes a lot of sense to me in terms of uh, the right spirit for creating comedy. And I think if there was more room for noble failure, which I think it feels like there is increasingly, then there's more room for better comedy. And then everybody wins, including comedy nerds who just want to write about what they like and don't like for so long that nothing's funny anymore. <laughs> yeah. We'll get off of uh, the CBC in one minute, but I, I do want to ask you about this because you you called out Amy Schumer for her <sighs> blind spot when it comes to race, mm. that she makes jokes about race that are not so thoughtful about some of the ideas that they're supporting. I mean, it was a very bold thing for you to do. I did not feel that that was a particularly bold thing to do. I was uh, writing a summary piece of sort of like the state of Schumer. And lots of people had written about that before me. Yeah. And I wrote, you know, 10 paragraphs about how she was killing it and one paragraph about uh, voices of dissent. And uh, it became this big call out thing, which it was not really intended to be. Um, that must be frightening getting into a. It's very. Yeah, I hate it. <laughs> I hate talking about it. I <laughs> hate it. <laughs> um, I think you were you were right. But I'm going to ask you the same question about Baroness von Sketch, which is, do you think Baroness von Sketch has a blind spot when it comes to race? Uh, I think the cast is obviously all white. I mean, that's just obvious. And so there was a lot of care taken not to write about experiences that weren't ours, um, but the room's not all white. And mm -hmm. so, uh, and the supporting cast is not all white. That's a really tricky question. I think everyone is very conscientious in the room. Do I think that we could be doing more to expand the diversity of the show? Absolutely. But I think um, if there's a second season, you know, that's another one of those things that once you get the thing made, you realize what you need to fix and then uh, you work very hard to fix it. Yeah, it, it, it's it's uh, something that like I kind of noticed before people who want to feel represented themselves pointed it out to me. But, you know, like I think it's that kind of comedy that is about getting it right and nailing the way people talk to each other and nailing what it's like to go to a gym or to go to a pharmacy. But then it's just like, wait a second, this is so right, except for the fact that never in Toronto would you go into a pharmacy and everybody would be white. And, yeah. You know, you go to a gym and everybody, you know. And that's where you run into. I mean, this is what's interesting to me about our people who try to suggest that diversity is going to be limiting in some way. Actually, not having diversity is limiting. Yeah. You said it much more succinctly than I did like that. Like it, it stood out for that reason. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that I think that that's definitely something that that should we get a second season, fingers crossed would absolutely need to be addressed just to stay relevant, to stay uh, on the right, on the right side of history, you know, to stay, uh, to stay funny as well. Like there's a lot, a swath of experiences and comic experiences that you don't get to talk about if you're not a person who's experienced them. Yeah. And so to have those experiences in the room and represented in the show is, is invaluable. It expands the comedic world of the show. Okay, thank you for enduring that mm -hmm. extended conversation about CBC. Thank you for ending it. <laughs> um, I was really glad when you agreed to come and chat with me because more than I wanted to talk about that, I, I've just been kind of reading your stuff for a long time. And it feels like you represent a whole bunch of new writers that are forging very different careers. Like I've seen your stuff in Gawker. I've seen your stuff in The New Yorker. I've seen your stuff in a ton of Canadian publications. You move between print, online, television, and you live here. Mm -hmm. That's not really something 
that I saw when, you know, and I, and like you, like there's, there's a point where like, you know, just reading about you, you started writing for your university paper and then, you know, you went out and just like, okay, who can I sell this stuff to? And that would have taken you to a very different place not so long ago. You know, it's not to say that people didn't go and have writing careers in the States, but usually they'd like leave. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. People still leave. Yeah. And then people leave and come back too. Like there yeah. seems to be a lot more flow now. I think Toronto is a great place to live. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I don't think that you need to live in New York or Los Angeles or wherever else to work in the media, um, even to work in the media in a lot of cases within those places. So most of my writing work is based in New York now, but I don't need to be based there to send emails there. Yeah, And I think the quality of life in Toronto is is nicer. It's a more relaxed way to live. I can afford an apartment with a backyard. Um, <laughs> Only in contrast to New York does Toronto start to seem <laughs> livable and affordable. Yeah, I lived in London for a long time and then moved back here and it felt like Disneyland for how cheap things were. Disneyland's expensive. That's a terrible example. <laughs> but you know what I mean? I was very excited to find that I could afford, you know, a room that wasn't a closet. And my family's here. My friends are here. But I mean, it sounds very try to say like the internet made it all possible. But I, I think it it has really expanded what you can do and who can see your work and how quickly you can get in touch with someone at a new publication or even a new total totally separate avenue of work yeah. can get in touch with you and say, would you ever be interested in doing this? And you can say, yeah, sure. I'll send you a draft next week. There used to be this idea of like, okay, um, I'll move to Toronto and then I'll like try to go to places where media people hang out so I can actually get FaceTime with editors and make a personal connection. And that's still the way that I think some people talk about it. And that's still certainly the way a lot of comedians talk about L.A., you know, to try and work up so that you have enough if you do JFL and then you have some clips and you can go down to L.A. for pilot season or whatever. That's another reason that it's nice to see that it's becoming increasingly viable, I think, to stay here. Because, you know, you you don't want to lose all of your most talented people every five years. Yeah. <laughs> and I think now, because you can make videos online and build a following and then have people come to you, it's a little bit more of a humane way to be a creator, I think. Yeah. You're not constantly scrambling for one person to notice you. If you get a lot of people who maybe aren't even involved in the industry reading your stuff or sharing your stuff or liking your stuff, then that's as direct a pathway as like knowing someone who knows someone who can get you a coffee. It's also really nice the way that I think the lines have gotten blurred or just fallen down between writing about like an essay about something that you think about versus like, this is explicitly a comedy piece that is designed to make you laugh in the first paragraph. It's, it seems like you can kind of like comment on social issues or journalism, comedy, like that just, it seems like it's everywhere now. Yes. And I think, thankfully, it got a little out of hand. I feel like there was a period where every like online piece of writing had like 12 exclamation marks and a paragraph that was all caps and like too many hashtags within the article itself. Um, I certainly was very guilty of that in my earlier days. And it's toned down slightly. But what's been left is just a slightly more casual more aware of its own biases kind of writing. I think objectivity is impossible and there's a a wider awareness that that's the case. And so you welcome whatever the subjectivity is that the writer is bringing to the piece. Yeah. Some people call that voiciness. They like voicey pieces, but I think in general, it's just letting, you know, the circumstances of the reporting come into the story a little bit. 
people complain like, oh, there's too much personal information in people's book reviews or whatever. But that's what you're bringing to that's what you're bringing. You're being honest about it. when you, yeah. yeah. Otherwise, you just have to print a synopsis of the book. So you're talking about your experience of reading the book, what you think was successful about it. And of course, that's influenced by what else you've read, what happened to you that morning. Yeah. You know, um, and it's silly to pretend otherwise. Yeah. Um, I think writing about your personal life or your personal thoughts can be mean that people feel entitled to your space or time or something I get a lot, which is a very nice version is that people always say, oh, we should be friends. Yeah. Oh, I feel like we're friends. And that's very sweet. Um, but we're not friends. Right. And uh, I'm. it's nice that I can make someone feel that way. I feel like I am searching for, in the book in particular, an intimacy with the reader. So that makes me feel like a successful writer, but doesn't make me feel like I've made a new friend. Yeah. And I, I think that's sort of uncomfortable as well. So putting yourself out there is just a little bit uncomfortable. That's an achievement. If people like leave it feeling like they're they're your intimate, mm-hmm. you know, and 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 feeling like it's just it's just so natural. But anybody who reads it could feel that way. But then I think that there is maybe some kind of price to be paid, like like n- not only in people feeling like they can encroach upon your personal space, but the emotional labor that's demanded by people who do think that they're your friend or like you know emailing you or asking you onto their podcast and then <laughs> assuming familiarity that is not warranted. Um, it It's a weird problem to have. It's I remember complaining about this to my dad recently and he was like, this is a pretty good problem. Yeah. And he's right. And I feel a little bad complaining about it, but it is also, it's, I've retreated a lot from writing about personal things because it felt like, oh, maybe there's too much of me out there. Maybe there are more things. I don't know. I'm 28 now. And a lot of the stuff from the book was written when I was 24, yeah. 23, 25. And um, I think there's things now that I I would be more interested in holding. I think I feel less like something is intrinsically uh, valuable to me based on how shareable it is. Yeah. And when I was just start also though, when you're just starting as a, as a writer and especially as a woman writer, the stuff that people want to buy from you are your sad stories and your sex stories. People will always buy those. And right. so if you're living in one of the most expensive cities in the world and you need to make rent, you're like, Oh yeah, a guy did treat me quite badly one time. Okay. And then that is online forever. Um, <laughs> Which is, you know, something we're thinking about. It's really interesting. And like, I think about the market economy of stories, a story told in the first person by a 24 year old woman about her sex life. Mm -hmm. A lot of people want to read that. Mm -hmm. Um, Now that you are older and you are a married person, (laughs) how do you feel about like that, uh, that marketplace and its attitude towards you and the things that have changed about what you might want to talk about? I saw a piece a little while ago by an intern at Vice that was like, I made all these sex toys at home and I fucked myself with them essentially. Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, girl, no, <laughs> girl, no. Um, and I mean, uh, maybe that's a knee jerk reaction on my part. Right. You know what I mean? She could have gone into that from a totally empowered place. Could have been her idea. She could have had a good laugh the whole time. Could have enjoyed it. But what is your concern for her? Well, my concern is that those are the stories that people want from you. Are they the stories that you want to tell? Do you have something else that you would like to be writing about? And they keep saying, you know, it'd be really fun. You know, it'd be really cool. 
Yeah. There's this sex show that's happening. Could you go to it and just, you know, like talk about how you feel about it? And maybe that's interesting to you. And that's great if it is. Sex and sexuality are endlessly broad topics that you can write about in a very interesting way. Um, you can write about it in a personal way that's interesting. You can research it. But if that's not what you want to be writing and you're being put into that corner and, you know, having sex with a zucchini and then writing about it for very little money, um, I it just makes me feel like like I, I think of myself back then and I'm like, would I have been, was I like a step away from strapping on a zucchini? You know what I mean? Yeah. Hopefully not. I think I knew where the line was for me. You can't help but wonder, was that her pitch? Was it her boss's pitch? Either way, taking something like that into a professional environment where you're like, now this is the work that we do. And where you're the most junior person in the office. Yeah. Yes. I think the the politics of it are uh, worrying or yeah. could be worrying. And it is not something that you see young men. Yeah. They don't ask guys to go and like milk their prostate with four different vegetables that they found. Maybe they would. I don't know. If they have, send me a link. <laughs> but it is the kind of thing where looking back, I thought I'd sort of hacked the system because it was really easy to write about my personal experiences. Yeah. And it let me actually develop a lot of my comic voice. Is there like a cost to writing that kind of stuff? You've turned down assignments like that when they were uncomfortable for you across the line. Mm -hmm. I, I know that why this is so difficult because you don't want to limit anybody. Like if that's what you want to talk about. Absolutely. And that is, it's a legitimate topic and we shouldn't be ashamed or anything. But if that person wants to write for the economist later, you know, I don't think that it would hold them back actually. Uh -huh. I think now you have to build up so, so, so many clips that it just gets buried. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, the news cycle is so short, the memory span of the internet, technically everything's there. But people do forget about things unless you get really big and then they dredge them back up. <laughs> right. <laughs> Even if they don't forget, though, I'm trying to think about like this sort of imaginary Wall Street Journal editor who's like about to assign a journalist a piece. But then they find the zucchini piece. Like, yeah, I don't know if they care. Maybe they don't anymore. I'm not sure they do, actually. And I'm not because it also doesn't say anything about a person's quality of writing. Yeah. It says something maybe more about the quality of assignments they're willing to accept or how little they were getting paid at the time. But I don't, I don't think it says anything about someone's writing to have some sort of spurious pieces in their past. I think that one of the things that is now being questioned and is more fluid than, than it used to be is, is the idea of success itself, especially in like, you know, show business media, like there, th this idea of a linear progression that takes you from your university paper outside, you know, Can Canadian professional to New York, Hollywood. And then, you know, what is the pinnacle? I guess you're Amy Schumer or something. Mm -hmm. And I think that we're starting to think more critically about like, uh, that probably sucks in its own way too and is unsustainable. And is that really like people are thinking about their lives and their kid have one and have kids or not, or that you're just like balance in a different way. Yeah. So you're 28 and a lot of the things that people would put on their list of like, oh, I want to write a book. I want to like, I would like, but I would like to write for television, but I'd like to do stand up. Like, uh, I think you kind of like hit a lot of the, the marks. I get the sense with you that maybe you're not ambitious in a classical sense. You know, that it's all driving to some apex as classically defined. And yeah, let me ask you it as opposed to tell you what your ambitions are. When you're 28 and you've already done a lot of stuff that people aspire to do in the lifespan of an entire career, 
how do you kind of conceive of what comes next or what you want? I think I'm very ambitious, um, but I agree not in a, in a way that I have a, a plan and there's a ladder and I, I'm just working my way up. Um, I would like to have enough money to be comfortable and I would like to work on projects that I find creatively fulfilling and fun. Working in television is the most fun I've ever had. It's so much more of an intuitive way to make comedy than sitting by yourself in a bad apartment at your laptop all day, hoping that something is amusing. Um, the snacks are really good. <laughs> um, so I would like to work on projects that are enjoyable to work on that I find creatively fulfilling, hopefully that people like. Yeah. And I would like to be paid a reasonable amount to do that. Thus the move away from print. And, uh, and I would, I would like to feel like I'm using the abilities that I have at the highest level available to me at that time. Sounds like you're talking about doing a lot of TV writing. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it pays a lot better. You get to hang out with people. It's not so lonely. Yeah. I will always love sitting at my computer for a few hours by myself, writing something very stupid that I think is funny and seeing if other people agree. Um, having that as an option is really uh, lovely. I would like to do more TV for a lot of reasons, sociability, gentle hours. It's also cool to be able to show something to your parents. <laughs> I spent a long time writing articles that I was hiding from them. Right. So <laughs> it's nice to be like, here, look, a clip, something that I did. But overall, I would, I would like, and this is probably why I won't ever move to New York. I would like to be very happy. <laughs> And doing creative work makes me happy and being paid adequately for it makes me happy and working with my friends makes me happy. So I don't really care how prestigious things I'm working on are if it's fulfilling all those other things. Thank you. <laughs> that is your Canada Land Show. I hope you enjoyed it. You can email me anytime. I'm at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything you send me and I will respond when I can. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is canadalandshow.com and our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. Canadaland Commons is bi-weekly this summer, so no episode on Tuesday, but The Imposter will be available on Wednesday. Go to our website to subscribe to it. Shortcuts will be up on Thursday. Today's show was produced by J.P. Davidson. Syndication of Canada Land to community and campus radio stations across this country is handled by Russell Gregg. If you like what we do, please support us.